This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glory and the sky above just proclaims your handiwork. The works of your hand are plain to us, but Lord... We are thankful that you declare your your word to us through the scripture, that you make clear who you are by the gospel that has been proclaimed to us. And we pray, Lord, today you would help us to hear the word and hear it clearly. Lord, we know that you have called out the end from the beginning, and therefore you have called out everything in between. We know that includes this morning, and we thank you that uh, this service is in the palm of your hand. It is within your control, and we thank you for that. We know you're sovereign over all that will happen. We know that... Your word goes forth and it does not return void. Lord, I pray that as I preach today, your word would go forth into the ears, into the minds, into the hearts of the hearers, and that it would not return void. We pray, Lord, that you would please let us be receptive to the gospel. I ask that you will, by your divine power, overcome my weaknesses as a preacher, that you would help me as I speak to be clear. Please help me to be passionate. Please help me to become passionate. Lord, as I proclaim the word today, I pray that you would fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit, that this weak mouthpiece might be able to proclaim the truths of the eternal word of God. We pray, Lord, for every heart that is here, that it might be inflamed with a passion for your Son that cannot be quenched with anything. We pray that each and every person will hear the word and be a doer of the word. I ask that every word that is spoken might bring honor to your Son, Jesus Christ, and that it would bring honor today in this service and lasting honor as it is lived out in the lives of every person here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. As we are making our way through the book of Mark, we have come to chapter 4, which is an interesting point in the book. You see, Mark only contains two places where there is extended teaching. That's found here in Mark chapter 4, and again in Mark chapter 13. Mark is an action-packed book. It is a fast-paced book. It is quickly moving from event to event to event. But here, Mark slows down and he interrupts the narrative to highlight this particularly important discourse. Now, I get the picture of what is going on before we read the text, get an idea here of the context. Jesus has just been confronted by Pharisees. They have literally begun to travel from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee to confront him and accuse him of being a demon-possessed fraud. His own family has come out and publicly requested that he stop ministering and that he come home. The crowds, the crowds are endlessly flowing to him. They are surrounding him. They are constantly close to him. But the only thing they want from him are the temporal things that he can give, not the eternal life that he has come to give. By any ministry standards, this day has been a hard day for Jesus. 
Yet, after the heat of the day dies down, Jesus goes back outside of the house where he was speaking, and he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, and he begins to preach from the shore until the crowd becomes so oppressive that he turns a boat into a floating pulpit and rows a comfortable distance away, sits down, and preaches from the boat. But the gospel that he has been proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom, that he has been proclaiming ever since we saw him come on the scene back in chapter 1, now he begins proclaiming in a different way, a way that is interesting and unique to Jesus in the scripture, and that is by parable. There are a few other occasions of people speaking parables in the Bible, very few. Uh, Last week, actually, one of them was referenced when the prophet Nathan would speak uh, in a parable to King David, but this is very uncommon. Jesus is the one who most speaks in parables, and he loves to speak in parables. In fact, we have about 60 different parables of Jesus in the New Testament. Zero in the book of John, just a handful here in the book of Mark, but Matthew and Luke are overflowing with these parables. But the disciples here, they're following Jesus. And I want to try to get in the shoes a little bit here of the disciples and think about what's going on in their mind today. They've left their jobs. They have completely dedicated themselves to obedience to Christ. They have gone away from their families and their homes to follow and obey this teacher, Jesus, as he travels throughout Galilee. And they're probably beginning to wonder, why doesn't everyone believe in Jesus? Why is there such a disparate variety of responses to this message? Everyone's seeing the same things that we're seeing. Miracle after miracle. They're seeing exorcisms. They're seeing Jesus have the ability to read minds of people who are around. They are all seeing the same things we're seeing. They are hearing Jesus teach just like we are. And this is Jesus. He is teaching with authority unlike anyone since the beginning of earth to the end. Jesus is proclaiming the truth, and literally nobody's listening but us. Literally only a handful believe. After the resurrection, there were literally only about 500 in Galilee that were still believing in Jesus, and there was only 120 witnesses in Jerusalem. And the disciples are probably wondering this legitimate question. Why doesn't everyone believe? Why aren't all of these people, these thousands and thousands of people that make up the crowds, why don't they all believe? Why are the Pharisees so opposed? Why don't they believe? This is a question that we have probably all asked at some point. Why doesn't everyone believe? If if this message is so clear and so obviously true, how is it that not everyone understands what I now know, that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords? Why doesn't the gospel message always get received the same way? Here in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 is what we'll read today. Jesus explains why not everyone believes and why not everyone hears the gospel and responds in the same way. He does so by speaking what may be the most famous of his parable. It's known as the parable of the sower. Some call it the parable of the seed. And in more recent years, it's become kind of the uh, standard to call it the parable of the soils. There are two scenes that you will see here in our text. The first one is public, where Jesus is preaching from the boat. The later is private, after the sun has probably gone down, and Jesus is speaking only with the twelve. And so, listen along and follow along as I read, starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them many things in parables and in his teaching he said to them listen 
a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Today what we will do is we will consider this text by considering the seeds and then we will consider the soil and then we will consider the sower. We'll start with the seed. Here, Jesus is speaking to an agrarian society. These are mostly farmers. Even the people that were wealthy, the Pharisees, they even had plots of land where they were responsible for growing. Even if they were not the ones who were putting the seed in the ground, they had an understanding of farming. The average person in Jesus' day was much, much more familiar with farming techniques than you or I. So Jesus tells the disciples in verse 14, the seed equals the word it is the good news it is the gospel the good news and gospel of king jesus and his kingdom the imagery of a seed is amazing this is such an interesting picture because a seed is tiny it is insignificant looking if you held out your hand it fits right there in the palm of your hand in fact most seeds could fit in the crevice those little creases in the palm of your hand think about your favorite park and the giant tree that you love in your favorite park that you go to and you have picnics underneath of it and you like the shade and the heat of the summer. At one point, if you were to rewind the clock, you could have taken that entire tree, everything that that tree is, and you could have held it in the tiny palm of your hand along with a hundred seeds just like it. Seeds are potential. They represent the future. They are much more than they appear to be. And here, the seed is the word. Peter, probably thinking back to this parable, wrote in 1 Peter chapter three, uh, 1, verses 23 through 24, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh like grass is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What we are hearing Peter say is the same thing Jesus is saying. The word is a seed, but it is not a perishable seed. It does not die the way that we think of seeds dying. It is a lasting seed. It is a seed that cannot be broken or destroyed. The seed is the gospel. And what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came and he lived a sinless life. That is an easy thing to say, but it's an incredible thing for us to consider. He lived perfectly, unlike you or I could ever do. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve that atoned for the sin of his people. And death could not hold him. He was raised on the third day and he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father to be the savior of sinners like you and me. People who do not deserve his grace or his mercy. He is there to give grace and mercy. So let's consider the word that Jesus himself is preaching. As I mentioned previously, he's now proclaiming the word in parables. He is veiling his speech in parables. Well, what are parables? Here in Mark, we're getting ready to see four of them right in a row. And this is the big one. In fact, uh, parables are just extended metaphors. It is Jesus taking Uh, Something that is natural, something that is obvious in reality, and he is comparing it to a mystery of the gospel. Jesus loves speaking in these parables, but this one here, this one is foundational. And as somebody who wants to study the Bible, you need to know what Jesus is saying here. This one teaches you how to interpret the other parables. If you don't understand this, you're going to fail to grasp the rest of the parables. Jesus says as much when he speaks to the disciples and he remarks about their dullness in verse 13. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This one is paradigmatic. This one is necessary to understand. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't leave it to the reader to guess. He does the hermeneutical work for us. He tells us what it means. He gives us the interpretation, just as he did to the disciples. I remember once when I was in high school, uh, I was listening to a youth pastor speak, and the youth pastor was talking about parables. And he said, the reason that Jesus spoke in parables was so that those uneducated people could much more easily understand what he was saying. So that those people who didn't know how to read, who'd never gone to school, that even they could understand what Jesus was saying. So after he finished talking, I I actually had some legitimate questions from from some of the parables. And I began to ask him about the parables and saying to him, I don't understand what this means. It wasn't this parable. It was several others. And he had no idea what to say. He was perplexed. He was confused. He said, yeah, I, I don't know what this means. I have no idea what this means. I have no concept of what this could possibly mean. And I began to think, if these are the easy parts of the Bible to understand, how on earth am I supposed to understand the hard stuff? Because if Jesus was speaking this to an uneducated group of people so that they could get it, I can't even get this part. The reality is the parables of Jesus were often used for the exact opposite purpose from what that youth pastor was saying. When the disciples ask Jesus why he is speaking in parables, he responds by saying in verse 11, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. 
That's really important. To you has been given the secret. This word secret, mysterion, the word mystery. The mystery has been uncovered. It has been revealed to you. This has been revealed. But to those outside, everything is in parables. There is clarity here among us. But to those on the outside, it is in veiled story. It is in parable. So that... Jesus continues, they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. The parables here are not for the purpose of clarity, but for obscurity. For those who are paying close attention, these words Jesus just said should sound very familiar. That's because Jesus is quoting from Isaiah six, which was our old Testament reading this morning. Let me explain to you what's happening in Isaiah six. As many of of us are very familiar with that passage. It is preached on more than probably any other passage in Isaiah and maybe challenging the top uh, passages in the entire Old Testament for most sermons. Here Isaiah has a vision of the majestic pre-incarnate Jesus Christ sitting on his throne and reigning in heaven. We heard earlier about the angels who were worshiping around the throne, singing, holy, 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 just as we sang as we joined with the angels earlier. And in the midst of this, God says to the, the people here in the heavenly throne room, who will go for us and who shall I send? And in the midst of that, Isaiah says, here I am, send me, which should be the cry of our heart as we desire to serve and honor our Lord and King. And then God responds and sends him and he tells him his mission. And he says to him, go tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. And then God tells him what he's going to do. He tells them that his mission will be in verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It is a faulty notion for us to think of God as this desperate individual sitting on the throne, wringing his hands saying, maybe if I just, maybe if I just send another prophet, Maybe they'll listen to him. Maybe, maybe if I can just get the prophet to repeat it over and over with just a slightly different way of saying it each time, maybe then they'll be convinced. Maybe then they will turn and repent. No, that's not what God is doing at all. God told Isaiah before he even started, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. They are not going to hear your message. Go and make their ears dull with your preaching. So then why speak the word of God? Why proclaim the word, Isaiah? What are you doing? Well, at the end of Isaiah 6, we see this very important truth that in Judah, there was a remnant. There was a lasting group of people who were hearing that word and who were believing, but the overwhelming crowds, the overwhelming masses, they were not. The word of God, including the parables of Jesus, and, by the way, including our evangelistic efforts and our telling of the gospel, both from this pulpit and in individual conversations, always serves two purposes. To those who are on the outside, the message of the gospel hardens their heart. But to those who love the Lord, the message of the gospel is sweet. It is refreshing, and it pushes us to grow fruit to bear fruit in our lives. Flash forward now from the time of Isaiah back to the time of Jesus. What has changed? What Jesus is pointing out is the fact that nothing has changed. The people of Israel that rejected the word of the Lord in Isaiah's day is the same 
group of people that is rejecting the word of the Lord here in the day of Christ. The people are still rejecting the truth. The gospel has never been more clearly displayed. The person of the gospel, Jesus Christ, is walking around among them. He is literally doing the miraculous to display who he is. Jesus is presenting himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yet, they reject the truth and harden their hearts. The parables of Jesus are simultaneously for the purpose of judgment and for mercy. Judgment to those who hear and reject and mercy to those who hear and believe. So that we come back to that question. Why doesn't everyone believe in Jesus? The problem is not with the seed. The gospel message is not the problem. The message is not with the seed at all. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The problem is not with the seed. No, the problem is with the soils. So now let's move on to point number two and consider these soils. And before I do, I I just want to note, and I, I think this is necessary and important, and I, I want to be gentle as I, as I speak these things. It is not our job to seek to identify those around us as these different forms of soil. Right now, what I want you to do is be considering your heart, not those who are sitting in the chairs or pews or churches around us. Let's focus on our own hearts this morning. These different patches of soil that the Lord is talking about represent different people. The first kind of soil is called the path, and that's found here in verse 15. Let me read it for you once again. The Lord said, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and they hear, and Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The path here is a small path. It would probably only be as wide as an individual. These were paths that would pop up between fields. There were some major roads that connected major towns, but these were not the main form of transportation in the ancient world. Most of the time, if you owned property, you would have a small path that would intersect or travel through the midst of your property. And this is what we see Jesus doing earlier on here in Mark, when he's walking along with the disciples and they're picking heads of grain. They're walking through the middle of a field and pulling heads of grain. And it seems as though at that time, the Pharisees were probably leaving the synagogue as well and doing the same thing, walking right behind them just not picking the heads of grain. Well, here, these paths that Jesus is referencing, these are paths that would be the same place that they would walk year after year after year. They wouldn't plow these paths. They weren't helpful. They didn't have any ability to grow because it was almost like concrete. They had been walked on so much that they had been padded firm. So when something falls on it, it's just like it falling on concrete. It doesn't sink in. It just sits right on top. That's the bird's favorite place. They love this place. They go there because they know there's going to be a meal after the man throws out the seed. And here Jesus tells us that the bird is like the devil. I once heard a pastor ask the question, why would the devil go to church? And he immediately responded and said, to steal away the word from those who are hearing it. What Jesus is saying is there are many, many, many people who are going to hear the word, but it's not going to even sink in long enough before the devil swoops in and steals it away. Are you aware of the significance of what's happening right now in this room? Are you aware of the spiritual warfare that is around us? Are you aware of the fact that we have an enemy who wants to steal away the word? We do have a foe who desires to take away the word before it takes root in your life. 
We have an enemy who does not want you to bear fruit. I've preached to many people, both from pulpits and from conversations with individuals. And I've preached to many people who, as I'm speaking, I can, I can, I can see it. It's going in one ear and going out the other. They're not even paying attention to what I'm saying as I'm speaking it. It doesn't even land. It, it hits the ground and the bird immediately snatches it away. It's sad but true. But there are people in churches all around the world today that will gather and that will hear truth, that will hear a gospel message, and it won't sink in at all. Instead, they will be preoccupied and concerned with the meal that they are waiting to have after the service ends. They are more concerned with the trials and pleasures of the day ahead or the week ahead, and they are ignoring completely the truth that is being spoken right before their very eyes. There are people who are more concerned with lunch than with their soul. That's this path. That is the hard ground that we are seeing here first. Unresponsive hearts, they're going to have the gospel stolen away from them before it's even able to sink in. I can't tell you how many people I have spoken to who have been saved by the good news of Jesus Christ. And after they've been saved, I speak to them and they will say, I never heard the gospel before. I'd never heard it. You know, on one level, that's true. There are, there, there are some people who have literally never heard anyone tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. But there are many, many who are these people who were hard soil, who they heard it over and over and over, but they did not have ears to hear. And so they never heard it. They never truly heard it because that seed was constantly snatched away. In the first soil, the seed did not even germinate. It doesn't even have time to sprout. And this morning I prayed in our opening prayer that this would not be something the Lord would allow today in this congregation or for the future of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. Let's consider now the second kind of soil, which is the stony ground. Now, this is important to understand. Stony ground does not mean ground that has pebbles in it or that has gravel in it. Uh, this is ground where there is a fine layer of dirt on top, but beneath the surface, just, just a little bit below the surface, there's bedrock. This is a kind of ground that is all over Israel. This is hard and stony ground. The, the little pebbles, the farmers would know to get those out. And over time, as they plowed, those things would come up. But what they can't get up is the bedrock just below the surface. So the word falls on the ground, and there's even an appearance from the surface that the word has begun to take root. There's an appearance from the surface that everything is going to be just fine. But just below the surface, the, the ground is just as hard as it was in the path. There's no difference. Let me read to you again verses 16 and 17. The Lord says, And these are those who are sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Someone can seem receptive to the gospel. They can even seem to receive it with joy. But when the pressures of the world begin to heat up against them, they want nothing more to do with Jesus. They want nothing more to do with the gospel. They want nothing more to do with the church. In the words of the author and speaker, Paul Tripp, he says, The test for your receptivity of the word is not your spontaneous momentary joy. Let me repeat that. 
The test of your receptivity of the word is not your spontaneous momentary joy. Let's not be fooled. The test for your true receptivity of the word is later outside of the room when the hardships of life and the persecution of the gospel drive you beyond your own strength and your own wisdom and your own righteousness. Hard times will either confirm your belief in the word or they will cause you to doubt the word. End quote. I can't tell you how bittersweet it is when after preaching someone will encourage me and say, thank you, that was a good sermon. I appreciate that. Please continue doing that. But then uh, there have been some times in the past where I will preach on something and someone will even specifically seek me out to encourage me and say thank you. And then a few weeks later, they w- I will be speaking to them about, about the fact that they have not changed at all. That that didn't sink in at all. That there has been no difference made at all. That that word appeared to take fruit. They were joyful when they heard it, but it did not grow to, f- to bear fruit at all. When it comes to salvation, many people pray prayers. Uh, People walk aisles. They cry tears of guilt when they have that pain of guilt that fills their heart. They repeat the words. They get baptized, etc., etc., etc. But for many, the fruit will never come because the root cannot grow. Because their heart is hard. Let me give you an example of this from the New Testament, from the Gospels. In John chapter 5, verse 33 through 35, Jesus points out this very thing occurring in the hearts of the Jewish people. And this is involving John the Baptist. Jesus says to them, you sent to John, or you asked John, and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, you asked John if I was the Messiah, and John has told you that I am the Messiah. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. That's how Jesus describes the ministry of John. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That did not last. At this point, what Jesus is pointing out is the fact that you were willing to listen and hear the message of John temporarily, but that did not last. That actually is true if when we get to Mark chapter 6, and we're getting there uh, rather quickly, when we get to Mark chapter 6, you're going to see that Herod was the same way. King Herod actually enjoyed, it says, hearing the words of John. It was his wife that hated John. And so... We see that John eventually is beheaded due to that scenario. But it says that even he enjoyed hearing those words. There are many that can receive the words with joy. They're briefly interested in light. But it's a fad. That it's a flavor that grows quickly bitter. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, it demands more than temporary fixation. It demands more than this temporary American fad that we do. You know, if you look back five years, all the styles are out of style. Everything that people are wearing in pictures is gone. Uh, it's even more so 10 years. If you look back 30 years, everything kind of looks the same because it just goes in cycles. But we are, we are obsessed with fads, right? Well, when it comes to the salvation of our souls, the gospel demands more than a fad. It demands more than temporary fixation. Consider the following quote from the great German theologian Helmut Thielik. He says, there's nothing more cheering than a transformed Christian. And there is nothing more disintegrating than people who have been merely brushed by Christianity. People who have been sown with thousands of seeds, but in whose lives there is no depth and no rootage. 
Therefore, they fall when the first whirlwind comes along. It is these half-Christians who always flop in the face of the first catastrophe that happens because their dry intellectuality and their superficial emotionalism do not stand the test. What he's saying here is there are many people who will profess faith in Christ. They will profess that they are enjoying what they are hearing in their Bible. They are enjoying what they hear from the pulpit. But when the first trial comes, they will fall. In the rocky soil, the seed begins to germinate, but it's doomed from the very beginning. It never had a chance because just beneath the surface lies the same rebellion against God that we saw in the first soil. Now we move to the third kind of soil, which is the one that contains many thorns. Let me read for you again verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and other desire and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Allow me to illustrate this with a personal story. Uh, once many years ago, I was sitting in a church service and an elderly woman came in late and um, as the pastor was preaching, she began to ask me questions. And I, I was really like, okay, this is weird. You know, normally people don't talk during the service. Well, she is asking me question after question, but they were good questions. So on the one hand, I was, I was trying to ask her, you know, can we, can we talk about this after? And on the other hand, I was like, man, she wants to know about Jesus. I really want to tell her. So I began answering her questions. And even as the last song was sung and the service ended, her questions continued. And I began to tell her about Jesus. And from all outward appearances, she was saved that day. And it seemed as though, she was sprouting and she was growing. And over the course of the next year, I saw the cares of the world in this woman's life. And I saw that over the course of the year, she was entangled in, and, and all these things that were uh, available outside, that she could not let go of them. And that literally it was just a year later that she left the church. She wanted nothing more to do with the gospel. And how do you explain that? How do you explain what was going on there? And Jesus tells us quite simply, he tells us why the change of heart occurs in these people. Why? It's because the cares of the world have come in and choked it. Kent Hughes, the commentator, puts it well when he says in his commentary on Mark, the thorny ground portrays a divided heart. It's a heart divided by irreconcilable loyalties. The heart makes some gestures toward Christ, but the cares of this world and the distractions of this age draw it back. It is pulled in other directions, leaving no room for spiritual concern. The deceitfulness of riches draws them with the promise of great good. This involves buying things you don't need to impress people you don't like with money you don't have. That's what the world has to offer. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this very helpful term to describe what's going on. He uses the word treasure. And this is a very helpful word for us because treasure... We all want to find treasure, right? We all want a buried treasure. There's always that adventurous part of me that wants to find a treasure map and then go find the treasure, right? But we have found the treasure if we know Jesus Christ. But what Jesus is saying is that this kind of soil is the kind where they don't realize what the real treasure is and the thorns, the cares of this world, the riches, the promises that this world makes will choke it out. This is the kind of soil that seems so prevalent in the landscape of American Christianity. So many people want just enough Jesus, but they really want the American dream. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus just says very straightforwardly, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. These people, represented by the thorny ground, they're intoxicated with the delusional thinking that says their life is best spent in search for temporal gains. Money, status, power, achievements, trophies, they're going to burn, they're going to come to nothing. But if someone was actually able to accumulate all those things, if they were actually able to achieve all of the things that they desired, and they were actually able to hold on to them and keep them until the point that they died, they're still going to die. And what's the point? What's the value of those things? Beware the preoccupied, divided heart. Beware this heart that is the thorny soil. Guard yourselves against crafty pride because it sneaks its way into your hearts. I know it does into mine. Possessions, power, prestige, pleasure, it's going to pass away. They are worthless, thorny idols that have so often choked away all possibility of spiritual sensitivity or fruitful growth in the Christian life. Now let's consider this final kind of soil, which is the good soil. Let me read for you once more, verse 20. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. On this soil, the word does not get picked away by the devil. It does not get choked out. It does, it does grow roots. It germinates and not only begins to sprout, but it actually grows to fruition. It is a receptive heart that Jesus is talking about here. True disciples of Jesus have a heart of receptivity towards the word. The word is planted in them and it actually grows and bears fruit. So what is fruit? The New Testament tells us some examples. I don't think it's exhaustive, but it gives us some examples. It tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are fruits that Christians grow. When John is speaking to the Pharisees, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is a fruit that Christians should be growing In John chapter 15, Jesus promises that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. And by doing so, we will prove to be his disciples. Christian fruit is Christ-like living. That's what Christian fruit is. It is the result of sanctification. It is the result of the Holy Spirit transforming us from being imitators of the world and living under the influence of the world and our flesh and the devil and transforming us into being like Jesus Christ, conforming us to the image of the Son. The pastor and commentator John Gill makes an interesting insight here. He says, All true Christians produce quality fruit, but not all produce the same quantity. And that's what we see occurring here. Jesus says some will produce 30-fold, some will produce 60-fold, and others 100-fold. And we desire to be the 100-fold. We should be the ones who desire to produce as much fruit, to imitate Christ as closely as we can. And we will still, by the time we die, if you live to be 110 years old, and you start right now seeking to be as much like Christ as you ever could be, we will still far fall far short of being like Christ. We will still fail. We will still fall. But our hearts and our desire should be that when we close our eyes in death, we will be have as much like Christ as possible. 
If you do not bear any fruit, simply put, you're not a believer. You are not a Christian. As Jesus speaks about on the Sermon on the Mount, a tree will be known by its fruits. You will be known by your life. Jesus does say here in this passage, let those who have an ear to hear, let them hear. And here Jesus is giving responsibility. It is not a passive thing Jesus is speaking about here. He is not saying there is nothing for you to do. He is saying by saying, let those who have an ear to hear, let them hear. The word hear does not mean just hear the words. It literally means to hear and practice. It means to do. And so when he says, let them who have an ear to hear, if you are here today, even if you are good soil, hear. Hear the word and do the word. Put it into practice. Let your life be one that bears much fruit. Let it be one that bears a hundredfold. In this, Jesus is showing us that we are responsible for the receptivity of our hearts. So now I believe this passage is speaking to salvation primarily, but it absolutely applies to sanctification. It absolutely applies to us as we are conformed into the image of our Savior. So I would say to you as believers, for those of you who know Christ, read your Bibles, listen to sermons, hear the admonishments of those around you, particularly your spouse or your family, do so in a way that is receptive. Have a receptive heart. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord, please let me tell you this. You may be, you may be here wondering, which soil am I? Which, which kind of soil is in my heart? And let me just tell you, listen carefully, please. The Bible is so clear that all, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. If you're here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, the most important thing today is that you know you are in grave danger. There is an eternity in front of you. And the Bible says that you are an enemy of God and that you are deserving of eternal punishment. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to live and die in your place, in the place of sinners like you and me. God is rich in mercy. And so you may be here asking yourself, which soil am I? Well, let me just tell you, if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you live your life for him, that indicates that you are the good soil. Do not put it off. Do not make an excuse. Do not put the prerogative on anyone else. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Now let's continue on to our final point today, which is the sower. And before I do, I want to point out two things. First of all, I want to note that there's much that could be said from this passage about evangelism. And you're probably wondering, if you've heard sermons on this before, why, why is he not getting to that? And the answer is quite simple. Uh, the next three parables that Jesus tells here in Luke, uh, Mark chapter 4, these next three parables are all extensions on and reflections on and extrapolations from this parable. And they are all, in some regards, referencing evangelism. So over the next few weeks, we will be considering thoroughly how this pas- passage and the following parables refer to evangelism. So I am not ignoring that. We will consider those things, but we just won't consider them in depth today. Secondly, I want to thank the authors, J.C. Ryle and also Robert Stein, as well as the pastor, C.J. Mahaney, for their insights that helped me see something in this text that I have never really seen before. And that's what we'll be considering for the remainder of the sermon today. Let's consider the sower. And as we do, I want to continue putting ourselves into the sandals of the disciples and empathizing with them. They are, they are communicating here that they don't understand something. And they're probably having this question in their mind. 
in regards to Jesus. Why aren't all people believing? Why doesn't everyone become a disciple? Jesus, why are there so few of us? How is your kingdom going to come? How will it grow? It doesn't appear from our perspective that it's growing. There's 12 of us here, Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus said to the disciples, the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. This parable is ultimately about the kingdom. This is a kingdom parable. This is made even more clear in Matthew and Luke as they speak about it. For example, in Luke 8, 1, when he opens up the parable, he says soon afterward, he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This parable is about the kingdom. When we evangelize, when we sow the seed of the gospel, that's what we are doing as we are proclaiming the kingdom of God. But here in this passage, what we're seeing is the ultimate sower. We are seeing King Jesus proclaiming the gospel about himself, telling the truth about who he is. And when the disciples are wondering, how is this whole kingdom thing going to work out? Remember, they, they don't get what Jesus is doing over and over and over. They're going to ask him questions that make it obvious that their motivations are still for an earthly kingdom. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand and he on your left? That's not the point. Son of, uh, you know, Boanerges, James and John, this is not the point. You shouldn't even be asking me these questions. That's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. And when the disciples are asking Jesus these questions and, and their focus is on these things, how is the kingdom going to work out? Jesus responds in this parable by showing the amazing truth that the kingdom cannot be thwarted. The kingdom cannot be stopped. The kingdom cannot be halted by any earthly means. What we're actually seeing... Uh, here is what I think the question arises later on from the mouth of the disciples in Luke thirteen twenty three when when Jesus is asked, Lord, will those who are being saved be few? Are only a few people going to be saved? Because by the time we get to Luke 13, that's what it appears like to them. Only a few people are being saved. And the kingdom of God here we see is being transferred from generation to generation, from person to person, as a seed, as it is faithfully scattered abroad, lands on good soil that produces fruit. God is going to continue to make certain that his kingdom advances by making certain that there is good soil. He is going to make certain that those who are inside hear and that they believe. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated here by Christ. It is being spread by the unstoppable force of the gospel. Just as a seed, once you throw it in the ground, if it lands in good soil, you're going to have a hard time stopping that thing from growing. You're going to have a hard time finding that thing. You cannot stop it. The gospel, when it lands on that good soil, will inevitably produce fruit. It will continue to grow. And if it is, it is possible for us to wonder... And especially in this setting, in a church plant, we're in a place, we're, we're new here, we're trying to proclaim the good news to this area here in Massapequa. It's possible for us to ask the question, why aren't more people being saved? Why isn't everyone responding to the gospel the way that I understand they should be responding to the gospel? Why isn't everyone believing? Why can't they all see the truth? The answer is, let us faithfully sow and let God do the work. He will be faithful to make sure there is good soil for that word to land upon. Thank you guys for sticking with the sermon. I'm encouraged by you. Let's go ahead and close out now in prayer. Lord, as your word says in Psalm 119, teach me the way of your decrees. 
Father, please teach us the way of your decrees that we might follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I might keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct the path of my heart in your commandments, for there I find delight. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life, for his atoning death, for his resurrection. Without those things, everything that I just preached about would be futile. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the seed. We thank you for the message. Please, Lord, we pray that you would let it bear fruit in all of our lives. Lord, I ask that you would not allow the devil to quickly pick away the seed of the gospel from anyone here. I ask that you would please let the hearts of this congregation always be good soil. And we pray, Lord, that as we proclaim the gospel to the lost all around Massapequa and the surrounding area, that you would cause there to be much good soil, that there would be much receptivity, that many, many people would hear and come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and sing for us our benediction. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.